What's that sound? That's the sweet sound of bacon. I like bacon. You like bacon. I like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. You like a biblical narrative podcast with Andy Rigoni. So, what is this? Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. And with that, let's get started. If you've ever worked for somebody else, even entrepreneurs work for their customers, well, then you know what it's like to be steamrolled or to be forced to do something you might disagree with. That's just how the world works. Leaders have the responsibilities to make tough calls, to make decisions that may go against the wishes of those whom they lead. In some cases, depending on the level of opposition, leaders have to resort to harsher means to bring people back into line. It's not uncommon for an employee to be reprimanded or even fired when he drags his feet in non-compliance and does not accomplish the goals of the organization. Leaders understand the dangers of allowing non-compliance or even poor attitudes to fester within a family or an organization or even a nation. And if history is any indicator, leaders have even resorted to very harsh means to get their points across. Welcome to Biblical Narratives Podcast. I'm Andy, and today we're going to jump into Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, to discover how a set of leaders needed to deal with a rapidly developing problem, a problem that would change their organization, even their nation, if they continued to allow it to fester. But here's the challenge. Their efforts to squelch this problem are going against a movement of God. And with that, let's get right into the narrative. My Lord, we count this as a privilege. For a king to invite us into his home is a rare and dignifying occasion for us, says a member of the great Sanhedrin. Standing in the middle of a garden-filled courtyard set between two large wings of the Jerusalem palace, the guests of King Herod Agrippa look around to take in the enormity of the trees and foliage surrounding them. Then facing south, they take further notice of the southern wing, which is well appointed with alcoves and porticos. To the north is an even larger wing crested by three towers that rise some 145 feet above the garden floor. Some of the Sanhedrin guests stand in awe of the opulence of an unknown world that sits no further than a wall away from the world they already know and see every day, as this is their first time here. With every turn, the guests exchange astonished gasps of wow and incredible. What kind of stone is this? Taking an interest in the wall adjacent to the garden, one of the guests guides a finger along the wall in an effort to find a crease. With increased fascination, he continues alongside of the wall to find where this block ends and an adjoining block begins. He can't. Flummoxed, the guest scratches his head and turns to face King Agrippa, who stands several feet away. Gaining his attention, the guest yells out, Sir, is this one piece of stone? He asks with a level of awe. How did they manage to put this in place? While leading the group, a satisfied Herod Agrippa turns his ear to better understand what the man is asking. Ah, yes, now that is impressive, isn't it? You have a splendid eye for detail, my friend. Not many people notice what you have, he says. My grandfather was insistent upon having these walls appear to be like one piece of stone. So he brought in Rome's finest masons to do the marble work you see before you. As you can see, this is quite different than the ashlar blocks that typify most of the Temple Mount. 
As Herod leads his guests along a tree-lined pathway, they shortly arrive at a porch furnishing a low-rise table surrounded with comfortable pillows and mats. The table is well-decorated and well-prepared with figs, pomegranates, dates, nuts, cheeses, salt meats, and various breads to sample. Wine is also present in front of each guest to enjoy. Herod invites his guests to recline in accordance to importance while taking a spot at the center of the triclinium table. Offering a moment of thanksgiving, Herod invites his guests to begin feasting on the abundance of food in front of them. The trickle of a nearby bronze water feature adds to the ambience of their dining experience. While feasting, a lively conversation ensues. A highly relational Herod Agrippa seems to enjoy his time with the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and all are in pleasant moods. As the conversation lulls, one of the more senior guests asks with an inquisitive tone, King Agrippa? Herod Agrippa adjusts himself to turn towards the man asking the question. With a gracious smile, he responds, Yes, we are so deeply appreciative of you taking the time with us as of late, the man shares with a hint of nervousness. Spotting his anxiety, Agrippa waves us off and responds, It's you I'm appreciative of. He looks around the table and gives eye contact to each of his guests. This is my home, and you are my family. Like you, I want to see Israel thrive again. Enamored with the endearing sentiment, the distinguished religious leader smiles at his host. He then looks at a colleague for support. Given an ever so slight nod to continue, the man clears his throat. Having Herod Agrippa's full attention, the man looks up to receive his permission. You look like you wish to share more, my brother, and ingratiating Herod offers. Tell me, and I will make it so. All eyes focus on the Sanhedrin member, with many thinking that this is the opportunity they have been waiting for. This is the moment to seize. My lord, I wish to say how appreciative we are of your partnership with us. With a level of hesitation, the man chooses his words carefully. As you are very well aware, we have an insidious presence in Jerusalem that has infested nearly every Jewish community throughout the world, and one that wishes to undo everything that we have stood for for over a millennium. We've made it our ambition to uproot their efforts, but our attempts have been futile, in part because we have had such little support from Rome. He pauses to ensure that he's understood right. But with you, things are different. Those who came before you, even your grandfather, didn't seem to have the compassion toward us that you have. Addressing the group, Herod Agrippa explains, Like I said, I want to see Israel thrive once again. Things were somewhat turbulent with my uncle, Herod Antipas, when he was locally in charge here in Jerusalem. And they were spiraling out of control with the spendthrift and childish Caligula seated on the Roman throne. With Emperor Claudius now in place... We will see a new and much stronger Rome emerge. He pauses for effect, then looks at his guest intently. You speak of the Christ followers, yes? Sir, you see through our thin curtain. Yes, I speak of the movement of those disciples who have forsaken our traditions and the law of Moses. They prey upon our commoners and influence them to commit to following the way. He takes a breath and looks around to see the nonverbal support of his colleagues. My lord, this has been going on for some several years now. We even deputized a bright young man to carry out a cleansing campaign of sorts, but he was found to be a traitor and became an ardent supporter and spokesman of the way. 
We haven't even had the resources or great support to go after them, but with your help, we can put an end to this madness. Shifting his position, an intrigued Herod asks, Oh, what do you suggest? Sir, the leaders of the way are based right here in Jerusalem, the guest points out. If we cut off the head, the body will no longer function, sir. Herod takes his time to process this idea. If we make life hard for their leaders, the movement will die? Precisely, my lord. The sheep will scatter, and we can get back to ensuring that the law of Moses is strictly followed, the man responds. The others nod their heads in agreement. Taking his time to think through the implications, a keen Herod Agrippa follows up with a question. How many are we talking about? Leaders, another responds. Well, we're not sure about the other cities. We can attest to around 20 or so here in Jerusalem. Another guest interjects. Yes, but you really only need to focus on three. The heads around the table nod in agreement, and others chant. Yes, three. Looking at the clues of affirmation, Herod asks. And these three are here in Jerusalem? Yes, my lord, another guest seeks to contribute. We see Peter, James, and John on the occasion. Those are the three. They are the prominent ones who used to meet daily in the temple when the movement started some seven or so years ago. Lowering his voice, Herod offers a thought. You all seem familiar with these three. Could you identify them in public if you saw them? Easily, sir, another guest offers. They are all from Galilee and dress accordingly. They have little means and take lodging among those who are sympathetic to their cause. Hmm. Okay. Do you know where some of these sympathizers lives? Herod follows. Some, sir, one of the previous guests responds. When we took a proactive measure to begin rooting these Christ followers out, we successfully removed one of their influential leaders. Since that time, many have fled to other cities, and those remaining here in Jerusalem have been careful to avoid us at all costs. Okay, so we need to simply identify them and have them followed to their respective homes. Herod processes aloud. Should be easy enough. Hoisting himself up from the mat, Herod claps his hands together. Very well, when do you wish to start squeezing? The Sanhedrin members look at one another. One of the elders speaks up. My lord, with Passover and the days of unleavened bread rapidly approaching, he gestures with his arms to speak for the group. We do not wish to lose another Passover to these rebels. They claim Jesus died and rose from the dead during this time, and they have filled the minds of our uneducated commoners with such rubbish that we can no longer celebrate this most holy day without being interrupted with their heretical nonsense. Another chimes in. Yes, my lord, we don't want to lose another Passover to these thieves. They threaten insurrection, which should be of deep concern to Rome. Some of the senior Sanhedrin members sigh and wonder to themselves. Uh-oh, this might be too much as we have now brought Rome into this. Okay, the dice have been thrown, and the insurrection allegation has now been made. Oh boy, where is this going to go now? A threat to Rome, taken back, Herod looks at his guests and considers this revelation. Okay, thank you for expressing this concern to me, Herod says. I will take this under advisement and process how to best move forward. Excusing himself from the group, leaving his servants to escort them out, Herod says, Thank you for joining me for a splendid evening. I will be in touch with you shortly. Left to themselves, members of the group wonder aloud to see if they've gone too far. A servant arrives and leads the group out from the palace. That's him, a subordinate priest informs a member of the Sanhedrin and the two next to him. His name is James, and I swear he's one of the Christ followers. 
The Sanhedrin member quietly signals the two to follow the man, and he turns to face the priest. Thank you for sharing that with me. May God smile upon you for your continued faithfulness. Feeling appreciated, the priest excuses himself and walks away from the upper agora. Following James out from there at a distance, the two men see him pass near Herod's theater towards the lower city. Crossing the major thoroughfare that divides Jerusalem, the two gain on James, who moves into the narrow streets and residences of the lower city. Along an even narrower alleyway, James opens a door of what appears to be a small residence. His followers identify the door and take note. We've got him, one of them shares. The other affirms, and they continue walking deeper into the lower city. Climbing up a ladder that leads to a diminutive loft in an already small residence, James readies himself for bed after helping the younger family prepare for the activities of the following morning. Moving in and out of a time of conversation and prayer with God, a satisfied James lets out a big sigh. Finally, we've begun making some progress. Lord, forgive my impatience here, but I feel like we've been way too slow to get to this point. Having spent much of the day strategizing with his brother, Peter, and the other local leaders, James feels like their next steps have become clear. Providing stronger leadership here in Judea and in other larger cities would require better training for the local overseers in each home church. He goes on, Lord, on one hand, these people need us to teach them. Moreover, as John has aptly pointed out, we need to reintroduce them to you and help them better understand what it means to stay connected to the vine. Father, this reality is so wild that our training has everything to do with moving them closer to you so that your spirit may give them full understanding. So your spirit writes your laws on their hearts. It just goes against our normal way of doing things. Interrupting his time with God, James realizes he had better check in with his host one last time before turning in. Coming to the edge of the loft and looking over the larger room below, he calls out, Hey, I should have asked earlier, is there anything else you need before I call it a night? Hearing laughter from the voices below, he laughs to himself, Okay, that's a no, and returns to his bed. In a pitch dark room, James stares up at the ceiling, slowly drifting in and out of sleep. In a moment of consciousness, James wonders what life might be like should he have his own family someday. He smiles at the idea and whispers, Someday, Lord, someday. Thanking God once more, James finally falls asleep. Slam! Crack! The abrupt noises startle James out from a deep sleep, and he immediately sits upright. Thinking that he hears muffled screams from the room below, James scrambles to his feet, down the ladder, and to the aid of his housemates. What's wrong? Guys, what's wrong? Abby? Joshua? Nothing. Seeing a dim light outside, James notices the front door to be missing. Running to the doorway and outside, James looks to see if there's any trace of his missing friends. Abby? He yells. Joshua? No response. Across the alleyway, he sees the remnants of the previously functioning door pressed against the wall of another residence. The darkness of night, especially in this neighborhood, makes it difficult for James to see and understand what has happened. Running to where the alleyway meets the larger street, he sees no trace of anyone. This has to be a dream, a baffled James wonders to himself. What is happening here? Heading back to the house to further investigate, James looks at the door fragments once more.
This is real, he says to himself. His body tenses as he looks back at the dark entryway. Something has happened to Abby and Joshua, and there's got to be a clue here somewhere. Coming through the doorway, he suddenly hears someone take a step toward him. He's not alone. With such little lighting coming from the outside, James is unable to see. Turning his head towards the noise, James immediately feels the sharpness of a blade being thrust into his side. Followed by a deep, throbbing pressure, the searing pain worsens as the moment slows. His body folds, and he stumbles toward the wall. An arm then reaches out to prop him up against the wall. Feeling his aggressor's breath next to his face, James is only beginning to process what is happening. What you've started, we will end, the shadowed voice whispers. With further force, the aggressor plunges his blade deeper into James's side, turning it as he thrusts. James grunts in utter pain. With no possible relief in sight, he stands helplessly trapped by the forearm of his attacker. Recognizing this to be the end, James slows his breath enough to respond to his foe. Lord, forgive this man. May he understand the love you have for him. Angry at this response, the attacker throws James to the floor and slowly removes his sword. Placing his right foot on the open wound, causing James to cry out in pain, the aggressor then wipes the blood of his blade onto the robe of his victim. Satisfied with his work, he looks at James, spits, and walks out into the night. It's done, sir. A servant interrupts a sleeping Herod Agrippa. He awakens enough to understand. How many? My report indicates that three households have been sacked, sir, the servant responds. Herod smiles at this. And arrested? We have a count of seven, sir, says the servant. Good, Herod says. And what of the one they call James? Dead, sir, the servant clips. Very good, Herod responds. That will be all for now. The servant exits the room, leaving Herod lost in his thoughts, as he stares upward at a well-decorated ceiling. Passover will be much different this year. Yes, much different. Turning over, a satisfied Herod falls back to sleep. We'll need to stop here for the session, guys. I know it's dark, but scripture simply shares what has happened. In fact, Jesus warned his disciples about these sorts of incidents. In John chapter 16, verse 2 through 4 and 33, here's what Jesus said. For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now, so that when they happen you will remember my warning. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. At many points in Scripture, Jesus shares that these sorts of incidents would become commonplace for believers. He was right. Christ followers would experience this sort of bloodshed for centuries, as the outspoken love of God is often trampled upon by those who have other agendas in mind. In many countries today, this is still the case. Should you wish to investigate this further, please consider consulting Voice of the Martyrs. That's www.persecution.com. From the perspective of the opposition, James, Peter, and John would have been key leaders to remove. 
So, while resorting to violent means in an effort to rid themselves of these three seems harsh, it was an easy decision for Herod Agrippa and the Sanhedrin to make. Remove your barriers so that you can move forward with your mission and agenda. Isn't that pretty much how the world works around us? Isn't that how business works? Isn't that how politics works? With ruthless leadership in place, organizations may be able to take root and eventually thrive on a local, national, and even a global level. Identifying the forward movement of the kingdom of heaven is really a fascinating study, especially when considering how the kingdom of heaven functions differently than the false kingdom of Satan. Ironically, as human beings, we've only known one way of functioning. We've only known of how leadership works within the false kingdom of Satan. That is, until Jesus planted the seeds of a better way. The kingdom of heaven would be unlike any other kingdom, empire, business endeavor, or organization that has ever existed. The kingdom of heaven would grow and be shaped by those who have been impacted by the Spirit of God, having permanently changed hearts and operating as the loving agents of God. One such characteristic is how the kingdom of heaven grows through the breathing of life into its followers. This is unique in that the valuation and encouragement of life-giving interactions is an important instrument of God used to change hearts. The kingdom of heaven advances from giving life, not removing it. This means the ruthless and forced compliance tactics often required by leadership is not present in the kingdom of heaven. Knowing the natural proclivity of this dark and ever-creeping attitude and approach to leadership, Peter was keen on helping leaders in the early church keep a healthy perspective. This is why we see Peter encourage those leaders in the church to lead with compassion and care, desiring God's best for their people. Here's what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5, 1-4. And now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And I too will share in his glory when he is revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I, I appeal to you. Care for the flock that God has entrusted you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly. Not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. Peter was well aware of a leader's temptation and capacity to take this approach to leadership. Unfortunately, ruthless leadership tactics happen in the church all of the time. And But let's be honest, the kingdom of heaven isn't always represented in the church. Oh my goodness, no. Having said that, there are many churches that do a splendid job of advancing the kingdom of heaven by wonderfully representing the love of Christ in their surrounding neighborhoods and cities. If the new covenant promise is found in the permanence of changed hearts, we as believers are definitely a work in progress. We vacillate between following our own desires and following God's desires all of the time. Leaders are no different, and the road to ruthlessness is an all-too-slippery slope to take. The temptation to require forced compliance from those under you is the very strategy used by the evil one. In our world, this approach is not only normal, it's expected. How else do you get a non-compliant worker or subject to carry his weight and fulfill his responsibilities? Yet the kingdom of heaven advances differently. 
The kingdom of heaven is built by those who are actively yielding themselves to the Spirit of God, ever aiming to be changed by God himself. So what happens when you lead someone who isn't aiming to be changed by God? Well, that's the rub, right? Yet, God grows his kingdom despite such adverse conditions. And he uses those changed by his Spirit to do it. I know it. There's a lot there, guys. But that's it for this week. May you ever seek to be changed by our Lord and carry out his desires this week. And in doing so, you will change the world around you for the kingdom of heaven. Have a great week, folks.